Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Keeps running, so just oh, okay, right. Yeah. Smile for okay. <laughs> Good morning, Upper Room. This is another first for me, I think. This is the first time you're going to get me on video. And I think video is a great equalizer because it makes short people like me no different than the much taller ones. But seriously, it's always a joy for me to come and preach God's word here or any other congregation for that matter. Not long ago, I remember hearing a commercial on the radio while I was driving. And it was for the Woodbine Racetrack. And he said, what's the day at the Woodbine Racetrack like? He said, this is what it's like. Will you, John, have Diane to be your wedded wife? Yes, I will. Will you, John, have Elizabeth to be your wedded wife? Yes, I will. Will you, Don, have Shelley to be your wedded wife? No way. Will you, John, have Ashley to be your wedded wife? Certainly on Wednesdays and Thursdays. That's what the day at a Woodbine Racetrack is like. <laughs> Unlimited access to whichever women you want, whenever you want them, is a metaphor now for a day at the Woodbine Racetrack. It's a perfect illustration of one pastor describing our culture as one in which our main idol is self, our main doctrine is autonomy, our main act of worship is entertainment, our main shrine is the TV or movies or maybe Netflix today, and our main genuflection is uninhibited sex. No wonder marriages seem dull by comparison. And last week as we began this series uh, on singlehood and marriage, I suggested some ways in which the spirit of resignation can get into marriages. The extremely difficult ones characterized by a lot of conflict that are just hanging in there until the kids get old enough so they can then divorce and go their merry ways. Others who are locked into a marriage for life, uh, divorce is not an option for whatever reason, whether it's theological or financial or social. And so they just kind of grin and bear it, ships passing in the night, dealing with the mechanics of life, but nothing more than that. And then I mentioned perhaps newlyweds suddenly discovering that romantic intimacy and rom romance during courtship was very, very different from the hard work of marriage, asking themselves, is this what I've signed myself up for? And as I continued thinking about that, it occurred to me that what we might call good marriages have a whole lot of same old, same old in them. You get up in the morning, get the kids up, get dressed, make sure you get some breakfast in, out the door, uh, or stay at home spouses needing to do the work there, rush through all the agenda items for the day, get the kids back from school, homework time, cook dinner, um, pack the lunches for the next day. Veg a little bit at the altar of Netflix if you have time and do it all over again the next day. And of course, in the middle of that, you're going to make sure that there's gas in the car, the car is fixed, the bills are paid, etc. And we sure hope nobody gets sick even for a day. Same old, same old. So is it really, really possible that new life, a fresh wind of vitality as we called it, can in fact come in and blow away the stale air of resignation? I mean, I believe it. If I didn't, I would have quit being a speaker long ago. I really believe with all of my heart that as we engage in these kinds of spiritual conversations that have to do with nuts and bolts matters like marriage, that the risen Lord Jesus Christ still reenacts what happened on that first Easter, that he joins himself to us. He shows up and he instructs our minds. So we say, I never thought of it that way before. He impassions our hearts. So we say, I didn't feel that deeply about it before. He energizes our bodies so we're able to act like never before. 
and our wills are inclined in a direction that was different. I believe that with all of my heart. Now, I'm also not so naive as to think one or two or even three messages on marriage is going to fix it all. But what we're going to be doing in these messages is lay some foundational building blocks that taken together will give us a vision of marriage and maybe fresh hope that vitality is still a possibility. As Viktor Frankl, that German concentration camp survivor, uh, said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, once we understand the why, we can endure almost anyhow. That's what I want to do in these three messages. Lay out God's blueprint for marriage, the overarching why with enough hows to get us moving and to stay moving. Now, singles, I want to remind you, don't tune me out because it's all about marriage. There's at least two good reasons that you need to listen. First of all, for those of you for whom marriage might very well be a part of your future, you need to go in with your eyes wide open. And even if not, and that might well be a calling that you can embrace, and we looked at that last week, much of what I'm going to say about marriage has to do with all kinds of intimate relationships. And our life is made up of a web of relationships. So it's relevant from every different angle. And again, for those of you who may not be followers of Jesus, thank you again for coming and giving us this opportunity to explain to you what the Bible does say about marriage and how Christians should be thinking about it, whether they actually do or not. And because you have come to church, I'm going to assume that you're interested enough to at least find out what the Bible has to say. With that, we're ready to launch into what the designer had in mind. What was the blueprint that he had in mind? And it certainly wasn't what a day at the Woodbine Racetrack is like. Now, even people aren't particularly familiar with the Bible probably know these three names. Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel. Jesus, of course. And probably uh, the Apostle Paul, who was a great first century leader, wrote many of the letters that we find in the New Testament. They all talked about marriage and they all referred to the same verse at one, some point or another. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Now, if all three of them use this, you know it's going to be important. So we're going to come back to this. But in order to get up context properly, we need to go one chapter back at the very beginning and set it in the larger context. And so after God created the universe and, and earth and human beings on it, he gave them this commission. He said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. Now the original recipients of Genesis would understand exactly what being made in the divine image meant. That it basically meant that this first couple was being given a mandate to use their rational and moral faculties to study the creation and then to use that knowledge to harness creation in such a way as to benefit humanity and to bring glory to God. Thus marriage was set firmly and squarely in the context of mission. This is emphasized very clearly in Genesis chapter 2 uh, as the story of creation is amplified. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That was part of that ruling and subduing. And then two verses later he says, And the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now single people remember, we learned that last week, that this does not mean that you are incomplete without a spouse. We talked about how Jesus elevated singlehood and Paul took it even beyond that to a choice for the sake of the kingdom. Rather, when you look at these two verses in context, 
It is God saying he, Adam, cannot do this mission alone. He needs a helper. And by helper, it certainly does not mean someone who's a servant at the beck and call of Adam. In fact, the Hebrew word translated as helper is used 19 times in the Old Testament. 15 of those times it is used about God and God is certainly not our lackey. Now, how does God help us? God helps us by giving us what we do not have and cannot produce by ourselves so that we are able to achieve our full potential as people who have been made in the image of God. That's the way to understand this. God gave Adam a mission. He said, you can't do it by yourself. So I'm going to bring along somebody who's so perfectly suited to you, perfectly matched to you, that she is going to give you what you need and you cannot produce apart from her so that you can achieve your potential to the fullest and vice versa, of course. So that, that's exactly the idea of help. And I only know one marriage well, and that's my own. So I want to just take a few moments to illustrate from you how this complementariness has worked to accomplish the mission that God has given to me and, and Shem. Uh, first of all, from the dimension of spiritual gifts. My dominant spiritual gift is teaching and her dominant spiritual gift is hospitality. And for the 47 years that we've been together, uh, these two gifts have merged together very well. Sham's gift of hospitality focused on making an atmosphere that is comfortable and conducive for others makes it much more receptive on their part when I teach or share or keep, get conversations going, facilitating interchange, which is what I do well. We did it when my work for Atomic Energy of Canada, when my colleagues came over to our home. And then for 36 years, we did it in Rexdale Alliance Church. And now for three years after we've retired, we'll continue to do that because, you know, marriage is set in the context of mission. There's no retirement from that. You can retire from a particular job, but you do not retire from your calling. And God's given us the pleasure of continuing for, to use those two gifts working together for the continuing mission. And recently, someone who's had the opportunity to be in our home several times said, uh, unsolicited by the way, that throughout this process, she has also picked up a challenge to do the same in her home. So mission was actually being accomplished in the mentoring of other people to do the same thing as well. A second dimension of how this interlocking and helping happened in our marriage comes from our personality differences. Like I'm very structured, Sham's very spontaneous. And this is a huge help when it comes to parenting, which by the way is a huge dimension of mission for married couples because they were told to multiply and have children and to pass on that faith. When our children were young and young children thrive on structure, my structured personality was very helpful in making sure that some important things kept happening on a regular basis. But when they got to the teenage years, they were not interested in structure at all. And Sham's spontaneity rescued me from disastrous parenting mistakes many, many, many times. And we were able to work together for that. Yet another dimension uh, of our differences. I'm a thinker. She's a feeler. And that also was extremely helpful when it came to raising children. I remember when Sheila went off to university for the first time. She would call every day. I'd often pick up the phone. Hi, Dad. Chat for two minutes. Can I speak to Mom? 45 minutes later, she hangs up the phone. Now, that's no reason time for me to get my nose out of joint to say, how come she's not wanting to talk to me for that long? How come she wants to talk to her all the time? No, instead, I need to be delighted in the fact that my wife has precisely those kinds of gifts that will make my daughter gravitate towards her and talk to her. That's how these things work. So three examples from our life where our differences have been this unique complementary shaping, helping one another accomplish the God's mission that we could not have done by ourselves. Now, single people, do you see now why I said last week that 
understanding mission centrality for marriage is so important. Because you don't put your life on hold until that right person comes along. No, you find out right now what is the mission that God has called you to do and get busy on it. And that way, when that right person comes along, because you now have a grid to evaluate, is this person going to be a helper? Is this person going to be suited to my mission or distract me from my mission? Then you're going to have the same kind of excitement like Adam had when God brought Eve along. He couldn't stop him. So he could say, wow, wow, this bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He recognized that perfect complementariness in her. So there's God's blueprint for marriage. First element, marriage is set firmly in the context of a mission from God to function as image bearers ruling and subduing creation. Dwight Harvey Small, an author, put it very well. He said, the experience of mature lovers becomes rich, not as they spend time gazing lovingly into each other's eyes. That will only give them a squint. But as they share life's challenges together, their eyes turn outward from themselves and the resources of both are marshaled for the task at hand. Lifelong love does not demand full-time devotion, at least not in terms of living for each other alone. Both are free to give generously of themselves whenever the broader need for love lays a requirement upon them. Now, it's pretty obvious that if this is the purpose of marriage, mission centrality, then it's going to take a long time, a long time of trying, not getting things right, failing, picking yourself up, carrying on once again. It's going to take a lifetime, and that takes us to the next element, which is covenant. Let's go back to that foundational verse that Moses, Jesus, and Paul all talked about. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, in the ancient Near East, the context in which Genesis was written, there's a bit of a puzzling statement, because... It wasn't the man who left his home and moved into his wife's family's home. It actually was the other way around. Yet it says, for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. So therefore, the leaving and the, cl and the clinging is not physical. Instead, it has to do with a shift of loyalties, a radical shift in loyalties from the family of origin to the new family that is being established by this husband and wife. And that involves... A, 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 a radical shift in order of mind and of emotion and of will. This is where the whole one flesh uh, business comes in. And the two will become one flesh. Now the most obvious referent to that one flesh union is sex, sexual intercourse which consummates the marriage. Now in the ancient Near East, it meant a lot more than just that. It was in fact understood as the seal of a marriage covenant. The ancient Near East was well familiar with covenants. And covenants in ancient Eastern culture was this. A covenant was an agreement between two individuals or two parties framed in words, ratified by a ritual, and set in the context of community. Can I read that again? A covenant was an agreement between two individuals or two parties framed in words, ratified by a ritual and set in the context of community. So this ritual was absolutely crucial and the sexual union, the physical union, the most obvious expression of the one flesh union was nothing less than the ritual that sealed a marriage and made it into a covenant as something permanent. That's why Jesus on one occasion after referring to that verse that we've been focusing on regularly, he went on to say, so they are no longer two but one flesh. There it is again. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. 
So prominence is that second critical component, a covenantal understanding of marriage. Now it's very, very important, so let me amplify that a bit, the difference between covenantal and contractual understanding. Now a contract is something that is based on mutual mistrust. And therefore a document has to be written of some kind that spells out the consequences of not following through on certain agreements. So for example, let's say you have to do a fairly extensive house renovation. First you go and find a contractor. Notice you don't go find a covenanter. You find a contractor. And then you draw up a document. And that document says something like this. If you do all of these things, I will pay you this much money. If you don't do all of these things, then I'm going to make sure through the power of law that you do those things and the law will be on my side. As for the other person, the contractor will say, I will do all these things and you have to pay me this much money. If you don't pay me this much money, I have the power of the law on my side and I'll make you pay me that much money. So it's, it's based upon mistrust. And you know what? Without our knowing it, we enter into marriage with such a long set of expectations. Some we don't even know ourselves. Some we know but have never articulated. And our spouse comes in with the same set of expectations. And the worst expectation of them all is that they are going to meet all these other expectations. You see, the whole thing is just set up in a contractual frame of understanding and it is wired for disaster and trouble, if not outright failure. Now, a covenant, on the other hand, is not based on mistrust. A covenant is based on trust. And therefore, the whole focus is not on what you will do. The focus in, is what I am committing to. It's unilateral and unconditional. That's why in a marriage ceremony, it's a proper marriage ceremony, you don't hear the one spouse saying to the other, now, if you promise to do A, B, C, D, and E, then I am happy to vow all these things. No, they just simply say, this is what I vow to you. It is unconditional and it does not depend upon you following through on some of the clouds that you're going to give to me today. And again, it's not very hard to see how a covenantal understanding of marriage is going to make things a lot, lot less likely for trouble and more likely for harmony. And so that's the second element. Marriage is set firmly in the context of mission and it is a permanent covenantal relationship. Now let's go back to the one flesh union for a minute. I said that the most obvious referent to that was the physical union, but was much, much more than that. Because the Hebrew word for sexual intercourse is the word yada, which actually means knowledge, intimate knowledge. And so, while sexual union is obviously intimate knowledge in one particular dimension of our lives, it actually embraces within it a much wider increasing knowledge of each other at the level of emotion, at the level of intellect, and at the level of spirit. And you can see how critically linked this is to the first element of being helpers together in mission because the more intimacy there is, the more effective we will be in completing the other person in all of these areas. So spiritual intimacy, for example, is increasing awareness and understanding of each other when it comes to our relationship with God, where we are in that relationship, how our souls are prospering or not. Intellectual intimacy has to do with the level of ideas, how we think about a whole lot of subjects and why. And emotional intimacy has to do with understanding one another at the level of feelings. Their positive emotions as well as their negative emotions, their dreams, their hope, their desires, their frustrations, their sorrows, disappointments, etc. And the greater the level of intimacy at these three levels, spiritual, emotional and intellectual, the more effective we will be in completing one another and accomplishing the mission. But foundational to these is spiritual intimacy. Now, why do I say that? 
Imagine these two kinds of boats, a wooden boat and a sailboat. Now the words wood and the word sail, both adjectives describe a boat. You know something about a boat when I say it's a wooden boat and it's a sailboat, but they're not exactly the same kind of adjective. When I say a wooden boat, it means it is made out of wood. It's a substantial adjective. When I say on the other hand sailboat, the boat is not made out of sails, it's not a substantial adjective, it tells you what drives the boat, it's a motivational adjective or a power adjective if you will. That's a different, you know, keep that in mind when we talk about spiritual. When the Bible says we are spiritual beings, it doesn't mean that we are spiritual in the sense the boat was made of wood. We're not spirit as opposed to body. Rather it uses the word spirit in the second sense of a sailboat. It is what drives us. So uh, uh, the entire human um, expression, if you will, of mind, will and emotions are all driven by the spirit of the man or the woman. That's why spiritual intimacy is absolutely foundational. The emotional dimensions of intimacy, the intellectual dimensions of intimacy, and finally the sexual dimension of it, if they're all to function properly, it is only going to happen when there is intimacy at the level of spirit because ill spills over and affects everything else. Now, given this crucial importance, it has been alarming to me in my many years as a pastor to discover how few couples, whether married, are planning to get married, have a clue as to what spiritual intimacy is all about. At least whenever I've asked them, it just seems to draw a blank or something they've never talked about. So I don't know where you are individually. That may not apply to you as a person. So I don't have any particular couple in mind. I'm just telling you what my overall observation has been. And so I want to take some time to walk through this whole idea of spiritual intimacy, what that looks like. And again, I only know one marriage, right? So I'm going to have to use illustrations of my own marriage, but please, I am not giving this to you in any way as if this is the only way to do it. This is not a model, it's an illustration, some tracks to run on. Some of you are going to look at it and say, okay, now I at least know I'm going to get started with one of those things. Others might look at it and say, yeah, I've been doing quite well, but I can fine tune it by looking at some of the things you've given me today. Yet others are going to say, you know what, we're doing fine, we don't really need any help at all. That's wonderful. You test it, look, cleave to that which is good, set aside that which is it. This is my attempt to describe it for you. So that some of you are sitting there saying, well, I don't have a clue as to what spiritual intimacy is. Hopefully this will get you going. All right. the, the foundation building block of it, are, oh, by the way, I, I did, can I back up a little bit? I forgot to mention one thing. When it says uh, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25, it says the man and the woman were naked before each other without shame. As far as I know, this is unique in religious literature. At least I'm not aware of any other religion that talks about this. They probably don't talk about marriage in any of the sense that I've talked about today. In that sense, Genesis 2 is unique. But what does this mean? Why is this there? Well, nakedness, first of all, is a beautiful picture of vulnerability that is absolutely essential for intimacy. If you're going to have intimacy at the level of emotion and spirit and mind, you're going to have to be open to the other person. And without shame emphasizes the fact that there's no obstacle to that. So nakedness without shame is a beautiful metaphor of vulnerability that intimacy requires without any fear or shame that might get in the way. Just want to add that as well. I've forgotten about that. All right, spiritual conversations. This is the essence of building spiritual intimacy. And they can happen in many different ways. 
So try not to jump ahead, folks. I should have given you that one at a time. But let's start with scripture reading, first of all. Spiritual conversations around God's word. So it's very helpful when husband and wife both have a plan of reading the scriptures. It doesn't matter that they have to use the same plan. Uh, my wife and I happen to follow the same Bible reading plan. And so almost every day, not, not ritually, almost every day, uh, usually it'll happen sometime in the middle of the day, one of us will ask or tell the other person, hey, this is what I read today. Or I might say, hey, what do you think of that? And we start having conversations about what we have read. <laughs> now, we happen to be very different people, and you're picking that up if you don't already know us. And so it's almost guaranteed that Sham and I will read the same passage of scripture and have completely different insights. Think about very different kinds of explanation, very different kinds of people, different ways in which it might work in our own lives. And so we begin to talk about it, you know, because intimacy doesn't mean identity. Spiritual intimacy doesn't mean we have to do this, be the same. Intellectual intimacy doesn't mean you have to think the same. Emotional intimacy doesn't mean you have to feel the same. It means you have to understand and be aware of where the other person is on those areas. So as we talk and share, this becomes a raw material for all kinds of conversations. We are actually doing what the Apostle Paul says to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. So husband and wife are teaching one another as they're reading the scriptures. Now if they happen to be reading in different passages of scripture, that also works fine because then she has read something that I haven't read at all. And yet I may need to have heard that word from God. Because sometimes when Sham shares things with me, God is speaking to me and vice versa. Now it doesn't restrict itself to just books. Uh, I'm going to skip over prayers. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. Books too. Uh, now again, Sham and I don't read the same books. Uh, the kind of books that attract my attention and fascinate me are not particularly interesting to her. The kind of stuff that she likes, I don't normally read. Well, that's fine because now she will periodically stop and say, Hey, honey, listen to this. Oh, here's what I learned. What do you think of this? Inviting my input into that. But I'm also learning and picking up now from a book that I would not have read myself. And then I would share with Sham some of the things that I've been reading about books. So get into the habit of reading once in a while. You don't have to read the same books. You don't have to read at the same speed. You just have to be talking about what you are reading. Sermons are extremely helpful. Every now and then we listen to sermons together because I've been preaching most of my life in a church. Sham and I rarely get a chance to sit down and listen to a sermon together side by side. We get to do that now in upper room and that's a delightful thing for us. So Periodically at home, we try to do that. So this past Good Friday, something very interesting happened. I had happened to be following a series of messages by uh, Andy Stanley. And so um, she's been listening to some of those as well. But this particular Sunday, uh, Friday, Good Friday, we listened to a sermon from a church that we um, attended very regularly during our two sabbaticals in Southern California. And he was, that pastor has since retired, but he was speaking on Good Friday. So we wanted to hear him. And he was speaking about uh, gratitude. And he talked about how he's been thankful to God for the many good things he's done. But he said, there are some amazing things God has done for me. And while I've been thankful, they actually demanded extraordinary gratitude. And so he talked about some of those things. And he even got emotional because earlier on in the week in the study, he actually cried when he thought about these things. And that landed on my heart so strongly because God immediately brought to my mind something that he had done for us three or four years ago, for which we had been thankful for which I have been thanking him almost every day for two or three years. But I had to say, God, that demanded extraordinary gratitude. So when the sermon was finished, I asked Sham, I said, so what struck you? She said, oh, that comment on gratitude. 
So what I was able to do was to share with her something that I had been, had been grappling with for a month at that time. God spoke to me about taking a ex rather extraordinary step of faith in the realm of our finances. Almost any step of faith when you're retired is an extraordinary step of faith. And so I had shared it with her because I wasn't quite sure whether I heard from God or not. So it's been mulling over me, it's been in the back of my mind and I asked the Lord, I wasn't really, I didn't think I wanted to do it. I had sort of questions in my mind. And so we kind of left it there. So when she said this, I said, this is what's been going on in my mind. And I think by giving away this money, and the amount doesn't matter, it was significant. I think I would be showing extraordinary gratitude. She said, I absolutely agree with you. And then she said, how about giving it to I was exactly the same group that I had in mind. And all of a sudden, it was a time of joy. Uh, what was a hesitating step of obedience, not even sure, now became a time of great, great joy and anticipation. It wouldn't have happened if we hadn't been listening to the same message and talking about it afterwards. Now, it isn't always that spectacular, but just show you what we might have missed otherwise. And now when we go on vacation, uh, I always make sure that we take along with us some sermon series or sort of listen. Now me, my structured in, uh, personality would want to do it every day. Hers isn't. And if I insisted, we'd be having an emotionally significant conversation and I will let you imagine what kind of emotions would be involved in that conversation. But we do it periodically. Then ministry. Remember marriage is set in the context of ministry? The ministry context throws up all kinds of material for spiritual conversations. <laughs> One of the things Sham loved to do at Rexdale was organize these special events, whether it's Christmas or a Good Friday or Easter. When she took on one of those things, I knew I had lost her for five or six weeks. She's an artist and she lives and breathes this stuff. She's calling people and listing them, getting practices, having ideas at the last minute. That's anathema to me, but I'm not involved in this. She does it. And so she will periodically keep me updated on what's happening, what she's thinking about. She doesn't really want my opinion on it in terms of whether she should or shouldn't. But she's just sharing all this. And I get a wonderful glimpse into her heart. I see my wife's heart. Amazingly, when she's actually involved in some kind of ministry. And then, of course, I share with her some things that have happened in my ministry, in the actual functioning of which is different. Uh, other times, she will talk to me about a ministry opportunity. Maybe someone's invited her to speak somewhere, to sing somewhere. She's not quite sure whether she says yes or no. So again, we have conversations. So ministry provides a huge context, uh, and particularly in the context of hospitality. We have lots of conversation about who we should invite, what we should accomplish on that particular day, uh, when is the right time, what is the strategic approach. So we talk a lot about those kinds of things. If there wasn't any ministry, there wouldn't be a whole uh, matrix for these kinds of spiritual conversations. And then, of course, parenting. If you're married, if you have children, that Genesis 1 and 2 sets that as a normal expectation. Transmitting the faith to the next generation, whether you're single people or with spiritual children we talked about last week or married people, uh, that's a huge dimension of our ministry. And so parenting has lots and lots and lots of opportunities for spiritual conversation. Uh, we pray for our children. And so we talk, Sham and I talk a lot about how we pray for our children, what we have prayed. We share with each other the things that God put on our heart, the verses of scripture that he's given to us. And so each person's prayer amplifies the other person's as well. And in this too, I'm always amazed at the kind of insights that God gives to her. And I'm very thankful for her. Now lastly, very quickly. So the, hopefully that gives you some idea of what spiritual conversations are like, 
and what spiritual intimacy can look like as you practice this year after year after year after year you don't have to do it perfectly you just have to get started somewhere and get going and god will lead you now lastly bring god into these conversations let's go back again to genesis 2:25 the man and the woman were naked before each other without shame now it's interesting there was one other person present god he created adam he created eve he brought her to adam adam was excited at what he saw god presided over that first union and god take to great delight in the sealing of that in of that union by the of that of that covenant relationship as we have understood and unpacked it today and all this was happening in god's presence they were not only naked before one another without shame they were naked before god without shame what does that say to us just like nakedness before one another means vulnerability that intimacy requires without any obstacles so nakedness before god is vulnerability without fear that this intimacy requires as well and so a mission centered intimacy fueled marriage that is bound by a unilateral a unilateral unconditional covenant is to be pursued simultaneously with the pursuit of that vertical intimacy with god because you see we cannot pull this off by ourselves all of these things i've talked to you about they have to be accomplished or they can only be accomplished as we daily draw sustenance from god as vijay ended his sermon on fresh wind in 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 the workplace he said meet with your boss your real boss every day that is such an important dimension bringing god into the equation now i have to make another comment here time for confession some of you may have heard and be put off by model couples like i i know one couple that i re- that i respect very much he's gone on to be with the lord right now she is not so they're much older than us but every morning he would be up at 6 o'clock in the morning go to the kitchen make coffee bring it back to bed and he and his wife would sit down have coffee together read scripture together and pray together and they did this every day now you might look at that and say oh my goodness there's no way i can do it let me let you in on a secret it didn't work for sham and me at all i'll tell you why we're so different in our personalities we're so different in our passions we're so different in the way that we pray that any attempt to do that together i think lasted a few days into our marriage and then it just wasn't accomplishing its purpose at all so for us we had to find another way of, of the praying together and for us it does not happen in long blocks every day like that we do that much more for our personal walk with god our private prayers with god which are another way of bringing god into the picture by the way but in terms of our praying together it's much more spontaneous much much more unstructured and it happens at various times in various ways and they're generally much shorter so shorter more frequent and unstructured uh there are significant times for example uh obviously when she's going off to do any kind of ministry whether speaking or singing or meeting with someone i always pray for her for that day and send her off with a blessing she prays for me when i'm away she's prayed for me for this ministry today uh those are some times when we actually take time to pray together and then first thing in the morning and last thing at night much much brief for prayers but they follow a particular purpose in the morning we just take time to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to god and we quickly rehearse some of the main agenda items for that day 
uh, whether they are explicitly ministry or implicitly. The people that we are meeting, the plans that we have for that day, just hand them over to the Lord. And at the end of the day, we commit ourselves to God, thank Him for what has happened that day, ask God for a good night's rest, a brief prayer for our families, or anything else that may be on our heart. And so we're slowly practicing and have been getting better and better at this kind of stuff. So you need to practice and come up with a model that works for you, but just try something and God will steer that moving vehicle so much better. So there we have it, those four basic elements. Uh, God's blueprint for marriage. Mission, permanent intimacy, and holiness. Now, single people, remember, this applies just as much to you as well. Because you also were made for a mission. You also were made for intimate relationship. Dave talked about friendships two weeks ago. For the fresh wind of God to come into those friendships in your life. And you're supposed to be in partnership, married couples and single couples, accomplishing the mission we talked about last, last week. So it's for all of us, singles and married. Now, I know that some of you are saying, maybe many of you are saying, hey, Sunda, this is just kind of an idyllic, unachievable vision, isn't it? Look at Adam and Eve. They were perfect people, sinless people in a perfect environment. That's true. That's true. And we'll talk about that next week. Because you see, what has happened is this mission has been engulfed by some problems in our lives. And it's helpful for me to think of it in these two, four ways. We're willful people, meaning we want our own way, and that shows itself up in marriage and in key relationships. I want things to happen my way. We're weak people. In other words, we may want things to happen differently, but we just can't seem to pull it off. We say things like the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're also wounded people. We bring baggage from the past. And one of the most powerful influences of marriage is our family of origin, any back baggage that we may bring from it. And finally, we're also war-torn people. We have an enemy. Remember the Liar Liar series recently? We heard that we don't only just believe lies, believe them to be the truth, but we have a liar. Well, this liar hates marriage. And so he's constantly at work 24-7 to pull marriages apart. And in the next two weeks, we're going to look at these W's and um, how do we pull off this vision even with those realities. But for now, all I want you to do is to one thing, okay? Before today, before this day is out, you need to work on it today. Before this day is out, schedule a spiritual conversation. Maybe it's the first one you've ever had. Maybe it's the first one you've had in a long time. Maybe you have it on a regular basis, which means it's already scheduled. Do that, and then here are a few things you might want to do. First of all, listen to this message again. Remember I told you that by Wednesday night you're going to forget everything. So maybe as part of this appointment, listen to this message. And as you listen to it, see where, the Holy, where Jesus has joined himself to you. Share with one another at the end of that. Where has your mind been touched? I never thought of it that way before. What stirred your heart? That's emotional intimacy. The first one is intellectual intimacy. Where is God moving you to act? That's the dimension of your will. So talk about those things. Talk about your mission together. What might that look like? Maybe you had an active mission you pulled back. Maybe it's time to re-enter. Maybe you're already on mission, but you haven't had a conversation about that for a while. What might that look like? How has God wired you? What are your unique gifts? What are your temperaments? What are your passions? How could those two things come together? Why, in what way has God wired this person to be the perfectly suited person for you? What mission together in God's kingdom would help you to function that way? How can you help one another? 
And then if you happen to have listened to other sermons, if you're reading a book, one of you are reading a book, use that as an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation. Maybe you can look at these four W's and identify which one of those tends to get in the way the most. Uh, your willfulness, your woundedness, your weakness, wart on, maybe have a conversation around that. And then, even if you're not in the habit of praying together, take a few moments to end that spiritual conversation. And once you get a taste for it, perhaps you might want to schedule another one and then slowly begin to build upon it. Let's pray together. And as I do, I want the worship team to come on up to the front. Father, we do acknowledge before you that um, left to ourselves, we can do nothing. But that's exactly the position you want us to be in. That was your whole point, Lord. You said to that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we thank you for laying out for us such a magnificent countercultural vision. That marriage is totally unlike a day at the Woodbine Racetrack. But it is something so much more breathtaking. Even if right now it's only a dim vision in the far distant horizon, Lord Jesus, we want you to come in and make that vision a reality. Gradually take us one step closer and closer and closer. So that as the proverb says, the path of the righteous will be like that first gleam of dawn, steadily brightening to the brilliance of the midday sun. We're not there yet, but we want to be. Even that longing is something that comes from you. So will you build upon this? Will you help us even now to cement that resolve to act along the lines that's been suggested for us today? In Jesus' name, Amen.